Telecast. Hi, I'm Justin Crosby. Welcome to Telecast Talks, the first in a new strand of interviews on Telecast, featuring the media business leaders shaping tomorrow's content industry. On Telecast Talks, we'll delve into the minds of only the most senior creative and C-suite executives. These conversations are less focused on the corporate strategy of their organisations and more about the person behind the big decisions. We'll ask why they took the decisions they have over the course of their career, the experiences that have shaped them, and aim to reveal the qualities of a successful leader. We'll also get their viewpoints on how the TV industry will unfold in the future. Kicking off the series is Kathy Payne, CEO of Banerjee Rights, the distribution arm of the global production juggernaut. Welcome to Telecast Talks, Kathy. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. I've just returned from my annual trip to Australia, which is great. But now, yeah, back in the folds. All right, back to back from the sun and back to yeah. the London winter. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that's where we're going to start today's show. We're going to talk about your background and your upbringing in Australia, what I'm really, really keen to do is to explore lots of different aspects of your career and understand the decisions you've made at certain points in time, but also how that's informed your leadership style. So let's go back to Australia then. And you were born in Australia. Tell us a bit about your upbringing. Okay. I come from a very large family. I'm one of 11 children. So I've got two brothers, eight sisters. Both my parents had families before, and then my father was a, a coal miner and a part-time truck driver, had a, a second gig on the side to support the family. And my mum was a very talented seamstress who also did domestic work. You know, we grew up with a, in a big house, outdoor life, lots of sport. As a child, I only remember being happy. We all did really well at school. That was just part of our upbringing to want to achieve and do well at school. I had sisters who are much older than me. I'm coming towards the the younger of the family. And I think the way we were brought up is, and it's still now, is that the oldest looked after uh, the youngest. And I think it was only when I was 10, I actually realized how little my parents had had in life. And, uh, you know, we always had what I thought great Christmases, but our our summer holidays were often spent. We lived on the central coast, so we would do local things. So relatively very happy, very focused on school and sports and and television and having fun. So eleven kids, yeah. Is was that a competitive environment then? I suppose I was the oldest of the youngest four girls, and then there was a big gap between the last two. So there was three of us, all very close in in age. I think, um, were we competitive? Maybe we used to fight over things like who got what kitten when we always had lots of pets and we may have had normal squabbles, but we're really close. We've always been very close as as a family. I think my nature was that I was probably responsible one, always. We all had part-time work, earn money, no, to to make your way. And how about schooling then and university? Is that, did you go through a fairly traditional sort of schooling? Well, no, I went through schooling, you know, through my first years. And then 
when I came up to what you would call year 10 here before you start your A-levels, I did really well at school. And in that year, you know, I was first in three subjects, one of those being French, actually, which my uh, boss would laugh at now. (laughs) And I felt this responsibility, though, because my parents had a lot of children. So to the shock of the school, I left school at 16 and got a job within a matter of days. And, uh, you know, I've always worked since then. And it was a bit of a fluke that I ended up coming into this industry. It was a chance meeting that someone was looking for someone to work and I went and saw her off the cuff. And I don't know why, but that day uh, she was asking me, you know, what salary I'd want. And I named a figure and she said, oh, that's a bit more than I want to pay. And I'm not really a cheeky person, I don't think. Uh, some of my colleagues might disagree, but I said, well, that's a I think that's the best investment you'll ever make, but have a think about it and give me a call. So she rang me up. This was Hanna-Barbera. She said, I can't believe you said that to me. You must come and work here. And that's the start of of my journey. As I grew in that role in particular, I always felt that maybe I felt a bit of a stigma or maybe I felt I hadn't finished my A-levels and I hadn't gone to university. So I got accepted because over the years with my experience at Hanna-Barbera, I started selling and I was traveling all around Asia selling. I was able to get into university as a mature student based on my work experience. And that's when I did my master's, which I loved, but I did that while I was working. Okay. Yeah. So what made you leave school at 16 then to take that? I mean, was it it to take that role or was it you you just wanted to to work? I didn't want my parents to have to pay for me anymore. I felt this responsibility and I always say, why do I always have to be, I was always responsible that way. Like I know it it sounds really, really maybe a bit corny, but those first couple of years were challenging for my family when I was, when I was working. I, I had a younger sister who was unwell. I used to basically work and keep a little bit, but give all my pay packet to my parents. That's just the way it was. I don't feel remorse, but that was about helping the family. And that's what all my family have done over the years. It's just the way we were brought up. All right. So (laughs) Hannah Barbera straight there at 16? No, no, no. I had worked in another industry before. And it was then that I I started working at Hannah Barbera when I was about 20, would have been about 24. Okay. Yeah. And what was your role? What was your first role like? Okay. So I went to work at Hanna-Barbera for the chief executive and Hanna-Barbera had over the years moved their animation production. A lot of that had moved out of LA due to changes in the industry, I think union changes. And at that time they were producing in Australia. So we produced animation for them. And the company Hanna-Barbera Australia was part of the Taft-Hardy group. And we had the rights to sell the Hanna-Barbera catalogue in Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and what was then referred to as Far East, which I find a very unusual term, you know, across all of Asia. And we were were selling that. And so my job was as a chief executive and myself, just the two of us. So I would do everything from contracts, finance, 
delivering the broadcast materials, planning her itineraries, doing her correspondence. And she was a wonderful woman, a mentor. We came from different backgrounds. She came from quite a well-to-do background, had grown up in Hong Kong and had gone to finishing school. So, and was very, you know, very, very well educated and loved the, the finer arts. And I was someone who came from the Central Coast beaches. If I look at how I <laughs> used to go to work, I had long, very curly hair and used to dress, oh, probably you'd call a bit bohemian hippie. And then one time she said, what are you doing in October? And I said, I don't know what I'm doing this weekend, let alone October. And she said, I thought you'd like to come to Cannes with me. And then that's where it all started. All right. Yeah. Now, Yogi Bear or yeah. Dick Dastardly, which which is uh, your favourite? Um, wow. I mean, it, it was wonderful because you, you know, one of the jobs is someone will ring up and want to do a clip licence of a particular clip of Scooby-Doo or the Flintstones, the Jetsons. I mean, they were all such wonderful pieces of IP. I think Scooby-Doo was pretty, pretty cute. And they've, they've stood the test of time. Yeah, absolutely. Hanna-Barbera was bought by Southern Star. It was, Hanna-Barbera was part of the Taft-Hardy group and that had other interests. It had producers, some other production companies, and they had started producing. They did shows like Return to Eden with the McElroys. They did some big drama. And then they actually floated on the stock exchange and that's when the company changed to become Southern Star. And throughout your career, I mean, you've essentially been almost with the same business for 30 years or so, or over 30 years. Yeah. But the industry's changed massively. Mm-hmm. And we're now seeing a real period of mergers and acquisitions and change in mm-hmm. the industry, enormous churn. Um, what would, and, and you've seen this change going, you know, right in the front lines. I mean, what would be your tips to people who are now dealing with all this turbulence and mergers and acquisitions and you know there's obviously a certain amount of fear around mm. it but there's also a huge amount of opportunity happens as, yeah. uh, as well well you know i have been through when um, southern star had a joint venture with endemol when um, john demol was a very clever person the way he would find a partner to jv with and then eventually you know acquire the company and that was the basis of buying the library to set up the distribution. And then, of course, we had the merger with Shine and then were acquired by Banerjee. I think that when you are going through those processes, you need to be transparent, clear, and as quick as you can. I think often if you look at the industry, by the time there's discussion that a company is going to be acquired or merged. Often people are caught in it. People, this affects their day-to-day lives, are caught up in the process wanting to know what's going to happen for a long period of time. So if you are responsible for delivering that plan, you need to be very open, as I said, very transparent, have a plan, start the process, be consistent and do it as as fast as you can. I think part of the worry is the unknown. People just want to know 
And you need to treat those who may exit the business in those situations with respect and make sure that they're properly remunerated. And I've been really, really pleased when we've had these big mergers. I mean, it's always hard when when some people have to exit at the business that we've been able to really be fair in the compensation that's been offered at the time. It's because it's a very emotional time, isn't it? It is an emotional time. And you need to understand that it's hard for people. You know, the people will, will take that, how people receive that, they might receive it and then go through a process. You know, there's a consultation process. So they might want to think, there might be anger, there just might be sadness, there might be you know, different worries for different people. And you have to understand, you have to listen. And I, I really do think looking at all the mergers I've been responsible for, we have followed those rules of consistency, being fair, being as fast as, as we could, being clear, always having the door open. And I do think we've made the right decision in the people. There's been a good blend of people from various sides of the business who have come together. And coming back to your career, mm. now you resigned from Endemol Shine just before the Banerjee takeover mm. a number of years ago, but you came back fairly quickly to lead Banerjee Rice. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, actually, I had resigned quite a while before, but I had just agreed with Endemol Shine at the time that it that we hadn't made it public. So... I actually, because there had been a sales process going on for Endemol Shine, which was widely publicised, and it wasn't successful. It had stopped. And then after that, they the company was going in a different direction, and it wasn't something that, you know, that I was in favour of. And I always think in life, you know, it's, you have to, when you're on a team, you follow what the leader wants. And if you don't, you you don't sit there causing trouble. You either say, okay, well, that's not for me. So I'd actually resigned in the April of that year, but it didn't become public knowledge until the October, just before the MIPCOM. So I had resigned and I had a, a long notice period, which I was happy to work, work through. And then over that summer, you know, there had been other interests, new interest. So it was hard to resign. You know, it's hard, it's kind of felt, it, it's a job and I understand it's a job and when I when I go, you know, there'll be someone else who'll come in and who will look after it. But it means a lot to me and it's. A, I feel like when I work with my colleagues, they're like a, we're a family, you know, we're a family of colleagues. And so it was a really hard decision and plus all those fantastic producers I'd represented, but I'd made the decision. So then when Banerjee, acquired Endemol Shine and then I was approached, it was, I was fortunate because I was able to, all those children who I wasn't prepared to let go of yet, I could gather them back up in terms of the producers. And was that a fairly smooth transition when you came back then? I mean... Well, I was at Endemol Shine, I'd resigned and then they put me on garden leave not long after the Banerjee acquisition or planned acquisition because then they had to go through a period. So I was on garden leave from the November. Too bad it wasn't summer garden leave and too bad we didn't then run into COVID. So when I did come back, 
I and then I had agreed to go to Banerjee. You know, I was I was quite able to do that, and I went in and met the team at Banerjee just before COVID. And then, so when I started, we were in lockdown. So I started in the April in lockdown, and Banerjee completed the acquisition of the Endemol Shine Group on right at the beginning of the July. So we had to do the whole process, basically we were on lockdown. So it was all remote, it was all on Zoom, and that was, again, another complexity on top of what was going to be a complex process. But because I was at Banerjee in the April and I had a couple of months before they completed the acquisition, obviously I knew the Endemol Shine distribution business very well. You know, I'd been there a long time. And my chief financial officer was coming over as well. So we had time to plan. But again, at the when it completed and the acquisition, we were pretty much ready to go. Because at this time, if I was at Endemol Shine, they'd been up for sale for a long time. So people were wondering what's it going to mean. So, yeah. So that's extraordinary, though, coming into that role, although not a completely new role, but a much bigger and expanded mm-hmm. role and one of the biggest jobs in global distribution within the content industry. But starting that... In COVID, in COVID. on Zoom. So not there were many people I didn't even meet. I was When I went into that office that day, it was only a couple of weeks before lockdown, I met quite a lot of the people. And I knew people, you know, from, from the industry. I do think one of the things that has really helped us in the the mergers over the years is that, and again, this sounds very not sexy part of the business, it's written about, back at Southern Star, we really had invested in systems. We had a rights management system, dare I say, in 1997. That tells you how long I've been at the company. We've always had good systems, very good systems, so that allowed us to integrate at a speed. We had to, we just had to deliver. What's the biggest decision you've made in business? I think the biggest decision I made was to come to London when Endemol Shine acquired Southern Star. And it was at a personal time in my life where something personal had changed and my, my situation. And it was a big thing to come back to London. I'd lived here years before. And I remember at the time that Endemol were actually acquiring Southern Star. It wasn't Endemol China, it was Endemol then, just remembering back over the years. And my two colleagues at, at Southern Star really encouraged me to come and so did my family. And I came, I said I'd come for a year. That's 14 years ago. And it was completely different. The way to work in this role in the UK. It was very different from Australia. Australia, I love Australia. It's my home. But in the industry, it was different. It was different being a woman, different working in a company, different having a seat, having really have a seat at a big table. And so it was challenging, but it was great. So I think that was the biggest decision I made for me personally. Some of the biggest decisions I make is, you know, there's been some very difficult decisions when you have to decide who's who's making it through a process. And in that process, I, you know, empower my teams 
for the various heads. They've got to run the interviews. They've got to make a decision. But for the big ones, they'll come and discuss it with me. So there has been one or two in there and a couple of massive investments (laughs) in programs. So describe your leadership style then. Well, I'd say that I'm always firm but fair. I I work hard, but I understand that different people have different needs from what they want. I'm transparent. I'm consistent. I'm flexible. I like to empower people. Now, I love it when I'm having a meeting with one of my direct reports, and they're the type of people I never have to follow up anything. They, you know, that's that's my dream. You know, I want to share share my experience. I I always say to people, never delay the bad news. And you know, it's hard when something doesn't go well, and you have to come and and say, especially for high achieving people, when you're not going to achieve something, it's disappointing for them, but. You know, you never delay the bad news and go back to the old. Once you share a problem, you share and as a team it's easier to to reflect and look at where you go. I like to try to give people when they come to me with with not so much problems or situations, try to give them advice, but really in the heart of hearts, they look after the territory and the account, they know the answer. It's just helping them find the answer. That's kind of, of of the role. And, of course, you know, working within a big group as we do. So I, I think that's my style. Uh, I'm pretty much what you see is what you get. And, and how about building teams? Is that something that are you much more focused on uh, trying nurturing teams to, to rise with you or is it more about, you know, identifying the people that you want around you and sort of building teams perhaps from the outside? Well, you know, this business is all about obviously the content, of course, great content. And the one thing is <laughs> if you're working with me, if you ever pitch a piece of content that you haven't watched or you don't know, because in your heart a successful person knows and understands the content and understands the client. So that is, but I think that you you know you want to encourage as you get bigger and bigger you know we're a massive distribution team but I like the people I work with and I like to know people and I have a genuine interest to 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 talk to people and get to know a bit about what motivates them what football team do they support not that that comes into any decision making but we joke about it but I think it's you know it's important to genuinely like people and to to nurture people. Did I go off tangent then? The question? Not at all. No, it actually brings me on to my next point, which is about culture. Yeah, about embedding a, a certain culture and and values across the business, which is tough in an international business, right? And and particularly if the first year and a half of that was yeah. through through lockdown. It was, and it was very different. You know, you're bringing, it, it was probably a smaller company buying a larger company than Banerjee acquiring Endemol Shine. And so it, the acquirer, the, the acquirer was, the distribution was being run by the company they acquired. Now, often it's the other way around and being respectful for that. But there was, a, you know, it was a scale 
there that we could be able to integrate and move things. And we had that investment in systems that just make life easier and make able to to do things. But I do think you're only going to get successful, I always say, if you don't bring people with you, you won't be. When all things being equal, people are the are the resource that makes it happen. So, no, I think about people who have brought me with them over the years and I want to do the same. And I encourage my you know, my line managers to do that. And you know, they, there are some and I think, no, I'll be honest, I'll say to them, I know your team better than you do. You need to focus on knowing your team more and understanding your your people. And I think that that's just, well, that's the way I like to live life. I mean, work is a big part of our life and we spend a lot of time doing it over our lives. So I really want to know the people I work with. What time do you get up in the morning? I get up early in the one great thing, one of the many great things about living in the UK is summer. So most days I'm up by about 5.30, at 5.30, yeah. And what time do you put the close the laptop down on, a, on an evening, would you say, on an average day? Well, if I'm being really honest, uh, quite often I might come home when I get home and then might be chilling out, catching up with a couple of things in Australia. And, and I usually try to to um, try to be in bed by about 10.30. But when I go to sleep, as soon as I put my head on that pillow, I'm out. And I think that's because I came from a big family and I shared a bedroom with so many siblings for so many years, I can sleep anywhere. (laughs) How do you motivate people in your teams? Well, I think it's, it's individuals. Some people are more motivated by a financial reward, other people... Are motivi- motivated by the achievement and wanting to to do wanting to do a good job. I would say, you know, I fit into that. I always wanted to prove myself. I don't know why, but that's that's the truth. If I'm being really honest. Some people are motivated that if I do well here, it's going to help me go into a different line of work. I think it's understanding what the individual is looking for. And one thing we always say, you can't always offer everyone the next step in their career, but what you can do is be honest about what is available and give them the best skills to take them to that next role. Because sometimes you, you do have to, to leave to get to the next level that you want to achieve, especially if you have a happy team. Mm. Now, coming back to what you were saying about systems, Mm. but also there's just disruption that's happening, innovation that's happening, AI is coming in and 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 providing all sorts of incredible opportunities. Mm. From a financial perspective, it's offering large media companies the opportunity to to do things faster, cheaper. And we've seen online marketplaces try to sort of get a foothold in the uh in the industry a few years ago it didn't really didn't really work even when we were going through covid how do you see ai changing the distribution business going forward well definitely when it comes to the way we distribute content now is quite different so while we 
still have the cornerstone of our linear, non-linear broadcasters, our big global streamers, our, our license fee deals. Now, we're all doing a lot of self-publishing, whether that be AVOD or SVOD, where it's based on a rate card of minutes watched, whether it's social media monetization. And so that is the the detail behind the way that's reported when you have to report back to an asset level and you know systems need to be able to to cope with that being able to pull that information off off platforms automatically now when it comes to ai ai we've been using for a long time in our iPhones and in everything that that we do you know it's clever technology and it is there but i do think in terms of efficiency of processes and eliminating some of that work, it, it has its it has its purpose. What it won't do is take away the creative elements of human, you know, the creative endeavor of creating fantastic shows, or as I've always said, the creative endeavor to sell shows. And I, you know, I I've said it to a couple of producers, I said, you know, sometimes we have to be pretty creative to sell certain shows. And I always think about some of our some of the most successful shows in our catalogue were the hardest shows to sell. No one wanted them. And how you need to be creative, and that's about understanding the audience, understanding the mood. But, yes, there will be efficiency, but it doesn't take away that human creative endeavour. And coming back to that human contact and the importance of mm. that and when it comes to sales and, and yeah. creative business, we're a couple of weeks away from the London screenings. Mm-hmm which is uh, one of the biggest days in the content industry calendar for mm-hmm. uh, distribution business. Um, what can we expect to see from Banerjee Wrights at London Screenings? Well, Banerjee is running three sessions. I mean, the, the, the depth of the catalogue. So we've got one that will focus on, on the scripted side and then the non-scripted and then our formats business. So we'll be holding our, our three sessions. They're all going to be held at BAFTA. We're one of the core members of the London screenings, which is there really just to ensure that we coordinate as much as possible and we make sure that smaller companies also can be fitted in the calendar. Well, it runs basically for a, a week. So we'll have a lot of new programs that we will be showing our team will be presenting. We've got some of the creatives coming and talking uh, about those. So it's a busy time. It is that start of the year and it's it's well attended. I do think that in just in the financial economic environment, you will see that there may be from some of the clients who are travelling a distance, maybe less people coming from there, but it is very well attended. And what's nice about the screenings is that you're presenting. It's a time where you can have a more intimate conversation about the content as opposed to a meeting in, in a trade market where you're limited. You're, you're talking to the audience for a, a number of hours and then the individual salespeople will, will follow up. And we've seen the development of London screenings over the past few years mm. and, and and all of the key distributors deciding they wanted to be in London and obviously on the back of BBC Studios having their yeah. long-running event. And a lot of 
that focus was taken away from MIP TV. A lot of com- companies decided not to go to MIP TV in such a big way. There's a rumor now in the press a couple of weeks ago that MIP TV is now coming to London. Mm-hmm. What do you make of that? I think it's a really tough Im- environment. I mean, we hadn't, when we were at Endemol, we hadn't been, I think the last time we went to MIP TV was 2018, if I'm correct, only because it really was was from the instigation of the salespeople who said, we'll go to MIP TV, I'm basically down there for the best part of you know, five, six days, where I would rather spend that time in territory, on the ground, in my clients, in the market. Because when you're in a market, you're just exposed to where you are and you can have more in-depth meetings, especially when not everyone was coming to to MIP TV. Obviously, Reed Mydam feel they may be able to offer something for the the smaller companies. Uh, We'll have to wait and see, but I think it's a fairly established market. And of course, when you come to London screenings, it doesn't cost you anything to come other than your travel. We don't pay an exhibition fee. We all look after our, our own costs. So that is, so it, it's a different, I'm not quite sure what the proposition's going to be. Okay. To well, be honest. All right. Well, we'll wait and see how that one, yeah. uh, how that one develops. But of um, course, they've got MIPCOM, which is still the biggest market and is you know, very important date in the calendar. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's just talk uh, briefly about the distribution or the distributor's role in the content industry mm-hmm. going forward, because we're seeing lots of change when it comes to US studios, rights changing, lots of um, channels, international channels that are deciding not they're not going to be buying output deals and continuing with output deals from a lot of the LA studios. Does that create a massive opportunity for you going forward? I mean, have you seen over the last year or so how the industry's changing and more rights are, are, positions are changing? I think what happened over, if we go back 12 months ago, you had two events that that coincided. We, Of course, there was the strike in in the US and then you also had the correction of all the, the streaming platforms in general the, where there had been a kind of grow, grow, grow subscribers at all cost. It came down to they have to make a profit. There's been consolidation. Obviously, we watched a lot of TV during lockdown. We had a balance as economic. We had real problem. We had wars that were causing economic uh, volatility. And, you know, in most places, nearly a global recession or there's been economic, maybe not technically recessions. I'm not the technical expert, but it was ch- tough. It was tough. It's felt like it, hasn't it's it? It's tough. And I do think there was that need. So there needs to be a balance. And you've heard all the big studio leaders say they're getting the mix between what is a, what original content they have to offer their subscribers to keep them satisfied, which will then also be supported by library acquisitions. So I do think you are seeing the models changing. You are seeing uh, deals where something may be commissioned where they may have wanted the world, where they don't, where it'll be able to be an ability for a distributor to get involved. Obviously, at the moment, it's really challenging with scripted to get scripted programs funded or funding in general. And 
there is a correction we that that has happened it has happened so and it it is challenging what what is out there those producers who will survive and thrive are those who will be able to produce programming for the available budget that will happen but it is very challenging and so you've you've been in the business of distribution for over 30 years yes <laughs> how do you how do you keep motivated then you know in terms of you as an individual not only is in terms of being satisfied with the role that you have but also growing you know because everybody has to have feeling of growth okay. and, and momentum don't they well, i suppose with the acquisitions that have happened in the mergers managing a bigger team taking on or our self-publishing it's such a big part of our business not only do we publish on many different platforms we have all our fast channels we have over 27 unique channels over 170 live syndicated streams they're all run so that's a different way of of distributing product but i go back to what motivates me i love having a piece of content talking to a producer thinking how are we going to get that to the intended audience how do we get it there financially and how do we get that to go on and find that and deliver for that audience. So I suppose I like that challenge. There's different ways. I always think of content as that pie and then you you slice it up and you exploit the different rights and, and window. And obviously that got a bit disrupted when the streamers were, were keeping a lot of their product for their own services. But things are changing again, as we, we can see. And it is a, it is a real challenging market. Anyone will tell you that. But, you know, out of when it's challenging, there will be opportunities that come. So I suppose I'm a very optimistic person and I, I still enjoy it. There's some things that, like every job, that maybe not so much. But, yes, I do enjoy it. And you talked about, you know, the length of your, your working day. Mm-hmm. How do you maintain a work-life balance then? Oh, I'm... Yeah, do you have one? Do you yeah, have I work? Do, I do, I do. I, I do a lot of uh, physical training. You know, I do weight training. I've got, I do yoga, those multiple times a week. I um, have a dog who I I walk. I love it when the dog has to come walking with me on the weekend. It tries to hide because it knows it's going to do a really long walk. I like that. That's kind of my thinking time. I have a great family, great partner. And and I do, you know, I can turn off really easily, but I kind of like life. I, I, I know I'm busy. I know I like to achieve a lot. There's plenty of time to rest when you're not here, <laughs> is what I say. Yeah. yeah. Well, But well, I, I do feel I have a good work ba- work-life balance. Oh, for me, it, and it's, that's very individual for everybody. Not everyone would do what I do, and a lot of people would think I'm I'm mad but then i might look at someone else's no it's just individuals and when the time comes for you to move on from banerjee right hopefully mm-hmm. it's not going to be for many years yet mm-hmm. but when you do what mm-hmm. would you like your legacy to be working within the business i would like <laughs> there's a few things i'd say content is so important i hope that people put as much value in understanding and nurturing the content and watching the content, and no, I love talking about the content we make when we when, when you work uh, with a company. Like when we talk about MasterChef, 
I really love it when we talk about one of our really little master, you know, master chef that's made on such a scale. The master chef in Australia out there in US, and then you'll have you know, master chef Mongolia or those very small markets. And I, I hope that that's important. I hope people remember about always you've got to run a business and understand those business principles. Everyone in Banerjee Rights knows what our target is. Everybody knows what our cash profile is. Everybody knows what we're aiming for our key financial indicators. You know, that's about sharing. So I hope people like that transparency and, and yeah. Communication. By Communication, the yeah. I am always like to be very open and we communicate a lot as a team and we're globally based in different locations. So we make a, a real habit of having our divisional meetings one time they'll catch the Asia or Australia, the next time they're the Americas and they're all filmed and available for everybody and encouraging other people to to speak out. Kathy Payne, thank you so much for spending time <laughs> with us. I really enjoyed meeting you. Thank you. Well, that brings us to the end of our first telecast talk show. I hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back with another guest from the C-Suite very soon. Telecast is produced by Spirit Studios and recorded in London. Don't forget you can subscribe to Telecast for free on YouTube. Just search Telecast on YouTube and hit subscribe. We'll be back with our regular Telecast show next week, discussing the new Sidemen documentary with director and former YouTube originals Emiya Boss, Luke Hyams. Until then, stay safe.